welcome to Various Things. My name is Gary Lama. Today's guest is Dave Brown. He runs Vicious Circle Records and recently put out a book called Adult Crash. The thing that got me interested in interviewing Dave, aside from him being one of my best friends, is that at the age of 40, he is still very much involved with hardcore and punk rock through activities with his label and through activities still being involved in the scene and going to shows. He represents something of an anomaly in something that has been branded as a youth culture movement and really forces people to look back at the history and maybe open their parameters of what they view the future to be of punk and hardcore music. He is a true music fan and I hope you enjoy listening to what he had to say as much as I did. But okay, so the first question is, um, I'll put this here so you can hear you. Uh, so you're 40, and how does it feel to be a punk rocker still? Well, it's been like a constant, like, like evolving version, because I mean, I'm still super music fan, but I don't like go to New York random Saturday afternoons for shows, also because I live in Richmond instead of uh, near DC, but like, it's been so much a part of my life for so long now because it's been like basically a quarter of a century that it's all that I know. Like I, I, I wouldn't know how not to be like, like I wouldn't know how to be like normal, which is why I get really, um, a bit weirded out when I see people in public and I find out how old they are and they're younger than me and they've already kind of like absorbed into normalcy. Mm-hmm. And it's not that like, I want to like, you know, oh, I'm going to be weird and different, but rather that like, I like that I've kind of taken my own path rather than seeing this path that everybody else has gone down and gone, I want to imitate that. Like, I've just kind of gone, okay, well, I'm getting from point A, you know, from birth to point Z in death. Like, I'm going to try to do my own path as much as possible and not look back and go, oh, man, like, I wish I hadn't been, you know, I wish I hadn't, like, kind of, like, followed somebody blindly into doing something. Like, all my mistakes now are my mistakes. And, and, and that's that's important to me because then I learn from them and I don't have anybody to blame but myself. But being 40 and still being, you know, like a weirdo mm-hmm. is is important to me because I want my kids to see that same individuality as they get older. That option? Yeah, like, like that it's there. Like they don't have to go, you know, th- their A to Z doesn't have to be everybody else's A to Z. They can create their own path and, and you know, be into what they're into and not feel like they have to be into the exact same things that everybody else is into to get to that same endpoint, and you know, feel disappointment if they didn't co- like replicate exactly what everybody else did. They can feel the accomplishment of wow, I did things you know like my rules, my way through all this, and you know, I get to, I get to reap the benefits because I didn't just carbon copy what somebody else did. So, it's interesting that you bring up the concept of kind of like normal life. Uh, it seems to have a timeline that, you know, like if you're this age, you should be doing this. If you're this age, you should be doing this. And I know from my own experience, uh, punk is treated as something of a youth culture, especially nowadays when it's marketed. Um, and so there is that timeline on it. It's, it's interesting. Is there is that timeline for some people that are involved in it. They look at it kind of as almost being, this is youth culture now. And... I think the interesting thing about the older people that are in it right now is they didn't have to go through that. 
like that wasn't assumed so much like by large culture of this timeline when they were doing it and so maybe they weren't encouraged so much to get out of it because if you think about like the first punks like they they didn't have a shoe company saying like this is youth culture and embracing it with like youth graphics so there wasn't this kind of well it was harder too because there weren't there wasn't a hot topic to go get a misfit shirt at like you had to maybe hope that a friend cut a stencil and spray painted you one i mean that's how i got my first dri shirt was this guy uh mike that i was in i think ninth grade with um literally just made a stencil and made me a dri shirt same thing with my friend glenn made government issue shirts why because he didn't want to go to like all like take two buses to georgetown uh, just to get a government issue shirt. He figured, well, I'll just make my own. Like, you can't exactly make, like, you know, a Virginia Tech shirt, you know, that people are going to find, you know, acceptable. Like, you, like, it's, it was different then also for them, the, like, especially, like, the first wave of, like, the hardcore scene, not so much the punk scene, but, like, the hardcore scene in the early 80s. They liked that they had this really small, really close personal thing, and by around, like, 85 is when it shifted and a lot more people got into it and that's what pushed a lot of the like the, the the first wave people out was all of a sudden it was like it wasn't personal anymore like it lost that really important thing about it and they just they didn't want to be a part of it if it wasn't the way that it was for them like they they t- they took it very personal when the personal part uh, changed and, and it was extremely personal back then too it was very personal I mean yeah it was violent yeah there was fights yeah there was all this, the same dumb stuff that you know happens now but some of the really unique aspects of it where you'd go to a show and you know you'd be in a room with you know 50 people it wasn't like you know warp tour where there's thousands of people all there for all these different reasons you had a bunch of people in a room that were all there for the exact same reasons and yeah it wasn't popular wasn't cool you'd get you know beat up walking the streets you know for just having a mohawk or you know like just looking weird because there was you know it wasn't something that people were used to seeing so they didn't understand it so they beat it up and I understand. I mean, I totally used to think that you know all these like older people that got out of it, you know, were you know all oh, they're they're older, you know, they're washed up or whatever. No, they just it wasn't what they liked anymore, so they had every right to leave. And who am I to say you got to stick around and you know still play hardcore if you're not feeling it anymore? Like I'd rather you go and do something that makes you happy rather than stick around and make me happy. Because mm. why would I? You know, if you're miserable, I'm not going to be happy if you're miserable. <laughs> well, speaking of. Uh you mentioned books earlier. Um, I think it's a descriptor of one of your things. You've made a book detailing your experience of hardcore. Uh, what is the one thing that stuck out to you about hardcore that you learned while making this book? Um, well, the one thing I was really paranoid about when I was making the book, since it's more like a visual um, history of what I saw, it's definitely not like a, you know, a book about hardcore. It's like a book about the hardcore and punk that I saw. Mm-hmm. Um for like the first like 20 years um, was I was really kind of paranoid about I was going to do this book and then nobody was going to buy it because mm-hmm. I was just like there's so many other books out there by you know really known people and like what if I make all these books and nobody likes it what if like me looking at it and thinking it looked cool like I'm the only person that you know feels that way then I have 1499 other books that like I would need to find a new home for. And the weird thing was, like, it was the exact opposite. Like, it, they just were flying. Like, and and it really made me happy having people trust 
my hype. Like I, I had to, I had to work a lot harder than, you know, real photographers and stuff to, to sell my book. But I got that, you know, it was very gratifying to all of a sudden look and, you know, have I made a special mail order version, have it sell out in like an hour and a half, two hours online for the special edition that I made just for the people that ordered it direct from me. And that just kind of put my mind at ease. And I learned that if you're honest about something that, and, and people have come to expect that from you, that you know, 10 to 1 they'll believe you when you tell them something later on uh, pertaining to that. And when I made the book, I just was really, I just really wanted to make the book, even if I was the only guy that, that, that would want it. I made it and, you know, I did it and that's, that's what, that's, there was no reason why I should feel deterred about doing the book, like, if it was just me. Like, if anything, I was kind of encouraged because then I had full creative control over it. There wasn't somebody saying, oh, I don't want that band in there or I don't want, you know, this guy writing a little uh, piece for it or anything. Like, from, like, cover to cover, it is, is very much a snapshot of 20 years of my life. And that's all that I wanted to do when I made the book. Like, I didn't have that exact idea in mind in those exact words, but that's what I wanted. Like, I didn't want to do a book and make a million dollars or, you know, all I wanted to do was get a book in somebody's hands that when they walked into a, like, you know, um, not necessarily a bookstore, but like a record store and saw it, they'd pick it up and go, wow, this is cool. I want to buy this. This looks good. And uh, that's pretty much what happened. I think the interesting thing about your book is that you've basically made a photography book but you're not a quote-unquote photographer. Like, you actually re refer to other people as being real photographers, this kind of thing. So you're approaching it more, you know, as the memento thing of it. But basically, essentially, what you've made is a photography book. And it, it makes me wonder, like... Like, I, I think people tend to appreciate things when there's actual context to it. Like, when there's actual story, when there's actual sentimental value to it. And I think if there's any problem with a lot of what people consider art is that it imposed on modernism or at least whatever they've tried to make it away from the context and be like kind of this self severed or severed from the self artist and with your book like it's a very honest thing like you're not really putting any pretension on there like some people would wonder like you know like jealous people I know through my life with, with your jealousy standard when you do something and you put yourself out there they'll wonder well why are you making this they'll wonder like what gives you the right to have your own book where you know where's mine I think punk instills in us the idea that like it doesn't matter like everyone has that t entitled to do it if you do it um that's why I jumped at the chance to do it I was like I'm not getting any younger yeah and I never thought that I'd be doing a second book I thought you know this would be like a, you know, a one shot deal and that I wouldn't get the itch to do another book, which is why I packed 400 photos into the first book. I <laughs> wish I hadn't packed nearly as many in because I'd like to have, you know, I I wish I had saved some for the second book. Maybe to elaborate on them. Or? Yeah, to to and, and um, just so you know, one of the critiques was, oh, there's too many pictures of this band. It's like, well, maybe if I had not used, you know, so many of a certain band, I could have saved some of those the shots that I really liked for the second book. And I mean, doing doing the book, it was. I felt this weird kind of like euphoria when they showed up, even though like I hadn't mailed out a single one and no one else had seen it yet but me, just because all of a sudden it became real. Like it wasn't just these files on my computer. Like they, it was a real printed book and I had like, it was 40 cases of them. 
on a wooden pallet at my, at, in the warehouse of my old work, and all of a sudden I'm like, oh my goodness, I really have 1,500 books here. And you actually had to rent a... A storage, storage space, because I, I didn't have enough keeping. space for 30 cases at my house. And um, so, you know, that that was it, was... it was neat to not feel deterred because, you know, I wasn't a known photographer or whatever. Like, I, one, um, someone, while talking about my book, pointed out, well, you say you're not a real photographer. Well, yeah. You take pictures. Yeah. Okay, you're a photographer. One of my friends, uh, Chris Sports, I was a immense fan of her photos years before I got to be friends with her. Like she moved to Richmond about a year before I did, but I was a fan of her photos for years before that with Slug and Lettuce. And it was one of those things where it's like I met her and she was just as awesome as the photos that she had taken. Like I, she was still really passionate about it. Like. She will be a photographer even if nobody else is looking at her photos. Like, she's out there taking these pictures. And I admire that because she's that good, but she doesn't need somebody to pay her a million dollars to know she's that good. And that's why she's still there. Well, I think one of the interesting things here is that not only is punk an ideal here, but it's also something that is obviously practiced because the very things like the idea of being a photographer and being legitimated or legitimized by like let's say uh, a gallery or something like this this really doesn't matter so Chris can take her photos you can take your photos and you can say you know what I'm going to put a fucking book out and do it and that's that, I mean that's that's it like there's no legitimization process you have to go through to do it. You don't it. have to get a permission slip from like, anybody. You feel like you're valid as a human being because you're a human being, essentially. You know? So this one this one might be a little tricky. Um, and you can think about your answer. Uh, it's not uncommon to hear folks claim that a scene, punk or hardcore, was better or worse back when they were involved in it. Uh, having been involved in it continuously for so long, what's your take on the condition of the current scene versus it over different periods of its life? Well, my first complaint is when people say, you know, it's not as good um, now as when, you know, not speaking for me, but, you know, it's not as good now as it was back when I was into it. Those people aren't into it anymore, so they can't be considered a valid judge, mm. because how can you judge something and compare it to something when you're not around to see it more than just, you know, what you hear from other people or, you know, some band that you heard that was really awful that's calling themselves a hardcore band and you're thinking, like, that, would, that wouldn't have... You know, flown back. You know, when back in my day, it's like that's that, that's so idiotic to, and, it, and it's because most of these people are just bitter that it went on without them. Like they got out of punk and hardcore, and they for some reason thought that it should that it, that it was dead then. Well, it was dead for them, mm -hmm. but it's definitely not dead because if it was dead, then why would there have been you know more people at a show I saw last month going nuts, having more fun than some shows that I saw 10, 15, 20 years ago. Like, it's different, yes. But how can you possibly compare two different time periods when things were different? I mean, we didn't have the internet like 25 years ago when, you know, you wanted to hear Age of Quarrel, you had to hope maybe your friend taped it for you. Like, you couldn't just go on the internet and type Age of Quarrel Mediafire and have it in five minutes. Like, and it's not that I'm complaining that it's easier now. Like I'm glad that it's it's more accessible. But that that that's the big gripe that a lot of people have is that it's it's too easy to be into it now. Mm. I don't want it to be like it was 25 years ago. Why? Because that would be really boring to me. Also, like if it stayed the exact same and you know oh so cool in that exact way, like 
who would want to who'd want to like that would be like watching like you're like in the football watching the same football game over and over and over again. Well, I think that's an interesting thing because it's like if I watch a football game, it looks like I'm watching the same football game over and over again. So maybe it, you know, maybe what the people feel is actually since they've lost, you you have to judge it in its context. And if you're not involved with it now, you have no point of reference for the actual context of it. I, I think people get into like making rules. And not realizing why the rules were there, you know, like the way people acted in the '80s was in the context of what they were working against and what was working against them. And nowadays, that might not be such an issue, but there might be new issues that need to be addressed to work against. And you know, it's like mohawks. Like in the '80s, if you had a mohawk, it was something that you'd probably get beat up for. Yeah, you've managed to stay. In something that is very current and very uh, about the moment, and still appreciate that, while um, managing a long-term strategy with your family, and you know, being able to—I mean, you're seriously one of the hardest-working people I know, and you uh, provide an amazing life for your kids. I mean, that is just you know, like. An amazing thing to do. And on top of this, and this segues into my next question, um, you're able to still prioritize putting things out like this book, like the record label that you've been running. Um, you know, most people have a hard time if they're 18 years old prioritizing getting up enough money to put one record out. And, like, what are their responsibilities? Like, pay their $200 rent and, you know, not get run over by a car. Um, but you're able to do all this. And so my, my next question is... Um, you know, you've been putting records out for years on your own label. Um, what motivated you, and what still motivates you to do this? Because you've you've still had like some pretty recent records, and I, I guess this book is actually on your label. Yeah. Um, the my, what motivates me now is still the same thing that motivated me then. It's not that I'm so much like a materialistic person, but I like getting neat things in people's hands. Like, um, I don't do the record label nearly as much as I did when I actually was. 18, 19 when I first started it, when I was like just finishing up with high school. But I, I still have the same. I still, I still like not only just liking a band, but liking them enough to want to mass produce what they're doing, you know, right and try to get it out into, into people's hands and ears and stuff. It's definitely a lot harder now to do it, and it just means that usually I end up uh, maxing out a credit card mm -hmm. or two um, versus when I was 19 and I didn't have. Uh, a credit card it meant like saving up my record store money and uh, record store job paychecks and uh, sending a money order off to the record pressing plant I'm still motivated to do it because it's still fun like I stopped doing my record label initially in 93 because I it stopped being fun for a while mm. and it, I just I felt like like I, wa I wanted bands to get the most from things and being mm. as I just didn't feel like I had the time to dedicate to getting the most I just wanted to go to shows mm -hmm. like I didn't want to like worry about like you know bringing a box of records to try to sell or anything like um and it wasn't that like i didn't like doing the record label anymore i just wanted to put my focus on just enjoying the music again because uh, yeah. um that's i i felt like i started to maybe kind of get away from that because you work at a record store you start to <laughs> not really like some of your favorite bands when i started doing my record label again in 99 mm -hmm. i just got the itch again and i had a little bit of money burning a hole in my pocket and so I did it and and it felt really good and and I still and I'm still enjoying it, you know, 12 years after that. 
and yeah, put out a record every couple of years, and that's that's good enough for me. Like nobody, none of the none of the bands that I've ever worked with have ever thought that you know I was going to have some ten thousand dollar. I mean, ten thousand uh, uh, ten thousand copies sold of any of their releases. Like yeah. I've worked with bands that were very realistic on what I would offer them and what I could do for them, and it was mostly fun records. It was it wasn't like throwaway records. It was records that you know they put they put you know. Um, 100% into, and I put 100% into, you know, getting it, you know, out as much as I could. But there was, they weren't going to be like, you know, wondering where their royalty checks were and stuff like that. Like that, like a band like Killer Idols, who are one of my favorite bands, I put out records, like different, like I think five different releases with them on them. Like two of them were comps, and then three separate releases. Besides that, I think that's what it is. It's either three or four, something like that. And you know, they loved. The, the time and effort that I put into all their releases and you know were always complimenting me on the fact that when I said you know they would have records in time for you know like a record release show or like or if they needed records for tour I, deli I not only said it but I did it and they really appreciated that because so often that wasn't the case with other labels they'd worked with that had bigger staffs that weren't just one guy and it's kind of sad that you know a, a label with you know dozens or even a dozen employees couldn't fulfill a promise that one guy managed to. I mean, their last show, ever, their last show, their last weekend of shows ever. They didn't even know I was going to have their last uh, release in time for it, and I overnighted a package to the guitar player's house so that they would have them in time for that Friday of the Friday and Saturday uh, shows. And they were so just blown away by that, and that 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 was that gave me so much personal satisfaction, even though most people didn't know that that's how it went down, because. I said I would, and I did. Like I wasn't gonna like be this guy full of excuses on why something. Didn't, oh, I'm only one guy, or you know, the pressing plant, this or that. No, like I told him I would do it, and I did, and it happened. I think that's one of the, you know the strengths of the personal thing in punk is that you don't get stuck in a bureaucracy of accountability. Like you have one person, you know their name, you know their reputation, they're accountable to you, and so they're gonna deliver or lose their reputation. Or rip a bunch of people off like some labels have done where I, they just didn't put out records. Speaking of, it blew my mind when I first started working at the recording studio. One of the labels that we had, uh, I'd grown up listening to stuff on and I thought to be a very reputable label, first thing I see when I come in the office is a note on the board, do not accept checks from and this label's name and it blew my mind because I was like why what? you know you'd think that if they have a payment department and this kind of thing like I don't think people really understand like if you work for a major label you're going to get paid when they feel like paying you and like they're going to deliver after management gets paid after, <laughs> after everybody gets paid then the band's going to eventually get paid yeah and, the, and this, even the studio the production people like just whenever they get around to it and um, the same thing with records like they're not releasing it when it's convenient for you they're releasing it on a release day, which is what are, the, what are those like Tuesdays, Tuesdays or something, yeah. um, and usually in some weird cycle that I don't even understand. But I think you might actually understand working in a record store. Like, isn't there like, like seasons? And well, you never put out like a big mainstream release uh -huh. around Christmas, unless most likely it's a Christmas themed release. Like Christmas time, like from like mid November through the end of the year, you will see a flood of just the most idiotic, worthless. Like, you know, Mariah Carey's, like, fourth Christmas record, or, you know. See, that's the thing that I think is amazing about music, is, like, coming into this through punk, like, I've always looked at music as art. 
I guess. Like, not art in, like, the capital A form, but, like, it's something people make, maybe craft, you know? Like, it's something that people make, and it's, like, a very organic thing. I've never looked at it as entertainment. And... Well, it's a creative process, not entertainment. Right, but to these people that are putting out, like, Christmas records, like, this is an entertainment product. It's like seeing a show at Vegas or something like this. Like, it's come, unwind, this is entertainment. I mean, I guess we use punk for entertainment in that, like, I'm going to go to the show, and I'm going to leave feeling great. But it's not because they got up and, like, juggled fire and sawed someone in half or, like, you know, played all, like, Frank Sinatra's favorite fucking tunes or something. Like, it, it's, it, it's like entertainment in that it, it connects you with something and you feel good about it. But that's not its primary thing. Like, I've always heard, the, you know, the common thing said about record labels is, like, they don't care. They're in the business of selling plastic. Like, for the companies that own them, like, they don't really care what's on it. Except that if it's offensive and no one will buy their plastic. Exactly. You know, and, um, you know, there's a difference between an artist and a musician. And, like, uh, you know, when I think of a artist, it's, it's, it's someone that has to make something. Like, they're going to make it whether or not they're getting paid. And what they make is a very specific thing. And it might change over time, but it's very specific to what they want to be doing at that time. And with a musician, they play an instrument. And they they can go play your wedding if you want them to. They will play a cover song. They can be put into a studio and produce the background music for the latest pop star. Like they, what they do is they are a master of their instrument. And I think, you know, it, it, it makes me sad when I see people like like when I was younger. I grew up on a lot of you know when I'm in high school or not high school but element or elementary school middle school. You know, I. I come to think of these uh, big label musicians as these authentic things. You know, they, they were talking about what they really believed in. And, and then in certain cases, you come to find that, like, a lot of what it was was stylizing. Like, they were adopting the style of, you know, maybe what they were really feeling at that point, but they were almost like chameleons. And, um, you know, so it comes down to ethics. Like, if you think that... I mean, if you believe in what you're doing, then, yeah, you're probably going to be able to, like, put a record out and uh, put it on the smallest label in the world and just be happy with that. But if your idea is to become famous, that's not going to work, probably. Uh, there well, are exceptions. Who, who wants to be remembered <laughs> as, the, the, as the, you know, the poor man's bad brains? Yeah. Or, the you know, the poor man's chili peppers. But uh, getting on to my <laughs> last question. All right. Um, as a 40-year-old, because you turned 40 this year. Is there anything you wish you had learned earlier in life that if you go back in time, you would tell yourself to worry or not worry about? Um, the one big thing about myself, and it pertains to my job that I, w I wish I had done different, I wish when I moved down here and I had told myself I won't work at a record store again, I wish I had stuck to that. Yeah. Because I had done... I, it sounds so like it wasn't jail when I say it, but I had done my time <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a, a, an incredible record store that was the most perfect record store scenario ever at a store called Vinyl Inc. And are they still around? Uh, uh, no, they they went under, and the owner, who was a good friend of mine, passed away. But like I worked at that store from '89 to '96, and it was just the most amazing store. But when I left there, the music industry was changing a lot, and then I started at another store in 99, and it's not that working there was so bad, but it's like, I just felt like it was kind of like a step back into, one, um, small paychecks, uh -huh. but two, I just, I, I felt like I settled when I got that job, like I didn't, um, 
try for something harder, and uh, I wish I had uh, thought a little bigger for myself on on that level. But that's not how it was. I I you know I made I made that uh, not so much mistake, but I made that I made that choice, and uh, and I'm happy where I'm at. But uh, looking back, that's probably the only thing I wish I had done any different. Thing is, I mean, I, I've, you know, I made some great friends while working there, so it's not like, you know, it wasn't like it was some hell. It's just that uh, I didn't really push myself as hard as I think I should have at the time. Mm-hmm. When I kind of had a clean slate when I moved down here in '98, where I could have uh, tried some different things, but it was I was kind of getting used to the environment, uh, you know, used to the, the you know, how things um, happen down here versus you know, big city life up near DC. Um, and they were so different, it took a little while to get used to, and I, I kind of, like, fell into the idea of, like, oh, well, that worked before, I'll do that. Well, that's not a bad thing, because, I mean, if you think about it, like, that would have been a drastic change to step into if you were, like, I've got this new big job that is going to be doing something that might be out of my comfort level, on top of, like, change of scenery. You also moved down here because you were uh, in love, so that's a new thing. Um... But, you know, also, I'm sure, like, just growing up and, and, you know, like, looking for this, uh, you know, looking at this place is like, this could be very good, or this could <laughs> be, I mean, when you when you moved down here, you basically just kind of did it on whim. Yeah. Like, you know, and, uh... Well, it's crazy, because, <laughs> like, I just, I think it was, it was just, it was kind of that easy step I needed compared to the other, uh, kind of, like, bigger jumps. Yeah. And, um... You don't have and to I make also, all the jumps at the same time. Well, I was working in a paper warehouse. <laughs> I was working in a paper warehouse when I first moved down here, and I was so miserable uh-huh. that just anything seemed better than that, even if it was kind of like a step back. Um, you know, it was the choice I made, and I have no one to and to blame but myself. But uh, I'm glad that I made the decision to change jobs when I did to the job I have now because especially with how the music industry has changed. Yeah. <laughs> like, I would not want to be relying on a record store uh, paycheck for the long term. Like, for one, it, I wouldn't be making that much more since I left than um, what I'd be making now. But also, I'd be wondering, you know, like, how long my work's going to be open for. Like, mm-hmm. one day, there may just be a close sign on the door that doesn't go away. And um, not to say state jobs are, you know, better or worse, but it takes a little bit more... It, it, there, there's a lot more paperwork and 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 things that go into uh, a job like mine going away versus mm-hmm. you know a, a small independent business that can be that can lose one it person's all and, decision and it's gone. Yeah, yeah. and um, you know I mean being 40 is awesome because I'm seeing th- like I'm looking back on like you know all the like all the different kind of like changes I've made over the years and I mean like 20 years ago did I ever think that at 40 I'd have you know three kids? No. <laughs> not not that I was ever anti-kid. It was more that, like, I just didn't know how that would ever fit into the equation of my life. And I not only had it work into the equation of my life, but my life still... I'm still happy. Like, I don't, I'm not, like, sitting at home, like, oh, man, I have kids. I can't go to shows. Or, oh, man, I, you know, I, can't, I can't buy records anymore because I have kids. Like, my kids aren't part of any kind of problem. Like, my, my kids are, are the, like, the greatest thing that I've ever done. This is something I'm very curious about. When you look at your life earlier in life, and you imagine... Did you imagine that you would have kids? Um, I didn't think I'd ever meet somebody that I would want to have kids with. Not that, like, my ex-girlfriends were, you know, bad people or whatever. It was more that they just weren't people that were into having kids either. And 
now that I have them, like, I, I can't imagine my life without them. Like, like they're part of my daily life. And that's what's just really neat is that so many people, like, as they get older, especially, but, and when uh, kids get involved, all of a sudden they're like, oh man, like, you know, like my life's over. I can't have any fun or like, Mm -hmm. oh my God, you know, I got to be like a grown up. I can't go and do the same things that I was doing when I was 25. Well, when I was 25, I was, you know, still drinking and doing drugs and stuff. Like, like I can still do the stuff that I was uh, doing at 25 that isn't bad for me. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, I really look forward to like my kids seeing that in me and going, you know, oh wow, you know, like, granted it wasn't easy for dad doing, you know, X, Y, and Z over the years, but like I got a great sense of accomplishment from the things that I did that did work out. And I appreciated those more than some, like some other people might not appreciate because, you know, my effort may have been a little bit like more difficult or whatever, or just different. And looking back, like I just, for as much as I just, you know, griped about who should I change job sooner or whatever, like I'm happy where I'm at. Like, you know, I have these three kids that are going to look to me as, you know, their dad for the rest of their lives. Mm. Like they get to see that, you know, you can live by your own rules. Like you, you can be a part of a big you know evil system but as long as you don't become that evil thing like there's there's nothing wrong with with that like like they i want my kids to be individuals i want each one aside from their names being different to also feel like you know one can aspire to be this one can aspire to be that like i would not want them to xerox copy each other and i think that they'll see that you know, with their mom and how and and how how she's you know lived her life and how I've lived my life, like we very much did it on our own terms, and and that's that's great because that's the thing I, I I don't think people get is that you know some people would look at you and they would be like you know like a kind of establishment kind of guy they they would if they heard the kind of things you did they probably wouldn't assume that you had kids. And um, simultaneously, if they heard you have kids, they wouldn't assume you do the things you do. And, you know, I think that goes back earlier to, you know, trying to, you know, as you were saying, like, I want, you know, you know, be weirdo. Like, I, w- I want to do my life the way that, you know, show my kids that there's other options than just, you know, basically assimilating into this thing. Um, if, if you had taken the path that a lot of people take, you could have a very financially comfortable life. Um, but you definitely wouldn't have been able to do the things that you're doing. And I think a lot of the things that people don't realize is the amount of actual sacrifice. Like, this is a choice that you've made. Like, this is something that, like, you've definitely prioritized, like, you know, where your ethics are and where you want to um, spend your time. And if you wanted to, like, have a job that you gave up all of your life to... um, and had nothing <laughs> but decompression time when you got home, um, you could definitely do that. But you've actually, like, managed to carve out, like, a life where, like, you can provide for this family and you can still enjoy your life <laughs> and you can actually enrich the lives of others by doing these projects like your book and your record label and all this thing. I think that's an amazing thing. I, I think, I just don't want that to go overlooked, I guess, is that... It's very easy when you're 20 to make a declaration that, like, I'm going to do this for the rest of my fucking life, you know? Um, it's a very different thing to see someone do it. <laughs> and well, it's a very different thing for them to, to see them have things that might have actually been kind of, like, looked down upon by their 20-year-old. You know, like, having a house, having kids, these kinds of things. 
Um, but be able to do that and do it in a respectful way to yourself and to other people. Well, that that's the 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 fun part is that I didn't I didn't feel like when I got my like the cubicle job I have now. Like I didn't feel like oh man, you know, like I'm just I'm selling myself out here. Like I'm like total like no. Like I found the happy middle ground to still do the things I like and to have the you know the more responsible job. Like I've never gone this like all or nothing route. Yeah, I possibly you know uh, skipped on you know some risks that uh, were a little too risky, but not so much risky, but just that were uh, kind of like bigger changes than I was comfortable making. Mm. But then I've also done like other things that were like way, way out of my league and succeeded at them. Like I, I've, I've, ha- I've, I like the track record I have. And I mean, when I was 20, I had no idea like what exactly like I would be doing at 40, but I'm kind of glad because I, I wouldn't want to have at 20 thought I had it all figured out mm-hmm. and you know and then at, when I reached 40 if I didn't you know like do those exact things feel like a failure like and it's not that you know I'm not just living for the here and now like I you know it's like I, I think about like well you know 10 years my oldest kid will be 18 like that's weird to me to think because then I'm like man when I'm 50 I'll be 50 in 10 years and that makes me feel old as shit because I remember when he was born <laughs> yeah and uh and and it's and it's just weird because I have different things to focus on now, but I haven't lost sight of the the cool stuff and the fun stuff that got me here. Like, I mean, I've had good times and you know bad times and crazy times and you know just outright stupid times over the years. But like all together, they they got me to where I'm at now. So you know, for all the you know crappy awful times and you know you know I may remember those a little bit more than some of the the good times sometimes, but. With one, I wouldn't have the other, and uh, and I'm definitely proud to be where I'm at at 40. This and other interviews are available at our website at variousthings.org. This interview was conducted on December 11, 2011.